0: This is the Roaring Elephant podcast for the 28th of February 2017, a podcast about Apache Hadoop and the surrounding ecosystem for anybody working with or investigating big data. My name is Jon, and as always, here's my co-host, Dave. Hi, Dave. Hello, Jan.
1: How are you doing today? I'm doing well, doing well. You believe another two weeks has gone? It, it just continues to fly by. <laughs> and of course, this episode, we have a special, special announcement. We do. So, um, for those of you that have been listening along, if this is your first podcast, you've been missing out in more ways than one. (laughs) Um, But uh, this time, we're able to announce um, that we have a winner for the uh, tickets to the Hortonworks Data Summit. So, uh, if your name is Marcel Jan Kriegsman, congratulations! Uh, You have won a ticket to the Hortonworks Data Summit. Um, We'll be uh, sending out a tweet to confirm that and we'll be contacting you directly as well. Uh, Please respond to us um, within seven days. Um, We also have an alternate. So if for whatever reason we don't hear back from uh, Marcel-Jan Kriegsman, uh, we'll be reaching out to Alejandro Verrega, um, who's been retweeting us for a while now. So thanks very much for that. Um, Both the winner and the alternate will get a Twitter private message from us with instructions on how to contact us um, to get the prize, Um, Please, both of you, reach out to us just in case one or the other does not, um, and reach out to us before the 7th of March, um, sort of 2359 UTC. Um, If the winner hasn't contacted us before this time, the prize will go to the alternate. Uh, If neither contact us, then, uh, well, we're going to sell the ticket on eBay. (laughs) Don't say that. People will believe us. (laughs) So... Congratulations again, uh, Marcel-Jan Kriegsmann. Um, and if I have butchered your name, I do apologize in advance. Uh, but you now have a, uh, a, a ticket to the Hortonworks Data Summit in Munich. Congratulations. And thank you for following and tweeting us.
0: Yes, and just to make sure that people understand their names, it's Marcel-Jan Kriegsmann. Congratulations.
1: Excellent. <laughs> All right. With that, news for the week, I think.
0: Yep, news for the two-week. We always say news for the week, but it's news for the fortnight, isn't it? This is true.
1: This is very true. And we each have three, so who goes first? I'll go first. Why not? Oh, so um, so this is actually a, a ZDNet article um, that's really just talking um, about a review of the uh, Spark Summit East. Um, so it, it's quite nice, actually, because um, I mean, unless you really follow each of these indiv- these events individually, it's very difficult to keep a, um, a handle on all of the event- various events that are happening. But I, I thought this was quite a nice sort of general write up about the the overall um, the overall summit and some observations. So there's some talk about um, some of the keynote sessions and sort of things that were that were discussed. but there were two two things that really um, kind of stood out for me on this uh, this particular article. Um, one of them is there's a uh, a graph to do with the streaming latency that you get um, in milliseconds from a variety of different projects. and um, they're basically comparing uh, you know standard spark streaming uh, with Flink and something called Apache Drizzle. Um, I, I can't help thinking that's a terrible name. Uh, <laughs> there we go. Um, but so Apache Drizzle is apparently something that will very likely um, appear in uh, Databricks' cloud-based Spark environment in a couple of weeks, and he predicted, uh, this is Eon Stoker, uh, predicted it will show up in Apache Spark um, around about the third quarter of this year so uh you know it's yet another uh, streaming engine although this time it's uh, it'll be appearing in uh, in spark itself um but it's kind of interesting that you're looking at um sort of you know around about i guess that's you know 700 milliseconds as a sort of minimum event latency f- even just for a um, sort of single throughput of a million events for for standard uh, spark and it ramps up to about um, I guess about sixteen seventeen hundred milliseconds uh, so a second and a half you know over a second and a half before anything happens when you get up to um, a significant throughput of uh, events whereas you know drizzle and flink are both hovering around the sort of um, sub you know between sub hundred to 250 milliseconds range um, re- pretty much regardless of how many million events that uh, you're considering um, you know a lot of people talk about um, streaming whether it's flink or storm or spark streaming um, I just thought this was a nice comparison showing that uh, you know microbatch is microbatch it's not <laughs> it's not streaming
0: yeah, it's an interesting graph. I never, never really took into account how, but almost exponential, the latency gets when your throughput goes uh, up. It's
1: kind of interesting, isn't it? And whereas if you look at uh, Flink and Drizzle, and I, I would guess that Storm is going to be in a very similar sort of yeah, space. Yeah, yeah. Um, they, they say pretty. I mean, yes, there is a slight an increase from 1 million events a second to 24 million events a second. But it's very, you know, very, very uh, little difference between that. So I, uh, yeah, that's the pretty... it gets
0: less when it gets higher. I mean, it, it ramps up a bit fast at the beginning when you go from 1 to 12 million. But then yeah. from 12 to 24, it doesn't have the same increase, I, I would yeah. say. Yeah, so yeah, yeah.
1: A lot nicer, yeah. Now, is Drizzle <laughs> really going to be a full real-time streaming I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I haven't actually looked into Drizzly in any depth, apart from uh, having a quick uh, flick through this. Um, but the the other thing I thought was interesting, and it it does um, it does kind of remind me a little bit, a bit of the just the way that Databricks approaches this is when they're talking about you know the growth of Spark, they're doing things like. Talking about the number of you know Spark Meetup members and things like that, which I it is interesting, but it, it I, I'm I'm more interested by how enterprises are adopting it. And this is a comment that, that comes in this article. That's basically there were significantly less um, presentations from organisations and a lot more presentations from vendors. Now I I don't know whether that is a a trend as such or whether it was just a trend at this particular. Um, Event, But I think that's kind of disappointing because I always like to hear from people that have actually gone and deployed this themselves rather than vendor speak. Um, It kind of depends how they approach their talks, right? If they approach it as
0: a real marketing opportunity for them, then, yeah, it's definitely a letdown. But also there's the effect where a lot of the, uh, let's call them experts in this field – started out doing this on their own, getting fame and fortune, doing little GitHub projects, Apache projects and whatever, but they have been picked up by companies. So if these same people now give a speech again, they might be giving the same speech, but they're no longer a private person, but a company True. XYZ. So again, I think you shouldn't overgeneralize.
1: Yeah, yeah. Maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. But what I would say is um, there's a link in the show notes to the article, as always, uh, but there's also a link to the uh, sparksummit.org east 2016 schedule um, and the reason for that is that as as with all great um, sessions you can go in um, you can take a look at the individual sessions that ran during the summit and you can go and take a look at the the video and the slides for almost all of the uh, sessions not quite everything is listed um, but most of them have both the video and the slides so you know if there's something that you're particularly interested in with birth spark i would say it's a, a great place to get some very current. And up to date information. Yeah, especially if you are geographically challenged, I would call it. Or just, or just dealing with a travel ban.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. We, we do not do politics on the roaring elephant. Indeed. We just say it's bad.
1: <laughs> so that's it for me. Over to you.
0: Okay. Uh, my first one is we're going to talk about pandas. Yay. And not pandas data frame. But the IoT Calamity, the Pandemonium, which is a very nice title. It's actually a article. Uh, the link in the show notes is going to be a PDF, but there's some other news articles around that you can find if you search for the title. And The PDF is from Verizon, Verizon Enterprises, actually. And it's about IoT security and how a university in the U.S. Uh, found that their internet access was not as fast as it should be. And when they looked at things, it turned out that their IoT enabled lamps and vending machines were actually doing a kind of DDoS attack using DNS uh, lookups.
1: Brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah. Botnets are everywhere.
0: Yeah, we talked about security and the things we expect this year in our future uh, gazing show. But this is a very nice write-up from Verizon who do, from time to time, do a kind of security, generic security state of the union, let's say. But this is particularly about this use case with lessons learned, how they went at it, how they found what the problem was, and how they fixed it. Because the thing was that the IoT net, which was created in all those devices, was continuously replicating itself. So whenever they changed one (laughs) IoT device, by the time they get to number 10, the first was infected again. So actually they had a script written, which uh, in a very short amount of time, a couple of seconds, was able to do the the update security fix on everything in the botnet that they had there. So it's a nice write-up about what went wrong, why it went wrong, how they found it, and how they fixed it.
1: Nice, nice. Yeah, the um, the Verizon uh, data breach report um, that that comes out every year is for the, for those of you interested in cybersecurity is genuinely a really really good read. So I would I would thoroughly recommend it's the data breach investigations report. And if you just Google Verizon twenty sixteen data breach investigations report, you'll uh, pick up that very very quickly. But yeah, I mean. As, as, we, as we talked about in our year in review and, and predictions, the, the, the sort of continued push of, of IoT and cybersecurity just continues to uh, go, go more and more crazy as more and more of these uh, exploits come to, come to light.
0: Yeah, and it also shows how uh, how they're still in the infancy of uh, looking at security in these things, because uh, if you look at the box on the second or third page about key lessons learned, what you should do to avoid these kind of things, one of the things they talk about is change default credentials on devices. Use Yeah, Jesus. Passwords. <laughs> yeah I, I, mean, I mean, yeah. But they're actually, I think they're, prob- they're probably right in saying this, because many people don't do this. It just works, right? Why would I look at it? yeah so just some basic security could have gone a long way already and in iot devices it is sometimes very hard not all sensor devices allow you to do this but more and more you are able to put a i don't know a cell certificate in there or a password or whatever if you have that do it <laughs> you will yep. act
1: yeah yeah anyway,
0: good stuff yep yeah, a nice uh, nice read up nice write up links in the show note
1: back all to right. you Good stuff. So actually talking about uh, organizations getting hacked, um, so Silicon Valley Data Science, um, I went to uh, pull up one of their articles uh, a couple of weeks ago. It was actually, I guess, probably nearly a month ago now, and uh, found that their WordPress blog had been hacked. <laughs> so, uh, whoops. I did actually reach out to them and say, I don't think the article that's titled here is actually the the right material. And someone, to be fair, someone there did get back to me. Um, they did confirm that, yes, unfortunately, their page had been uh, been hacked. Um, a lot of WordPress sites had been cracked that particular time. I guess they hadn't updated mo- uh, recently enough, and uh, the the content was um, was put back in place within within the day. And they reached out and asked if there was you know something in particular I was looking for. So you know, good work, Silicon Valley data science. Um, although perhaps better to uh, keep your WordPress up and up to date completely. Um, but in, in this particular case, um, just to shout out to two quick articles, um, one which is uh, getting started with deep learning that just has a really nice comparison of, um, you know, seven uh, – seven, yeah, seven different – um, deep learning technologies, um you know, Ciano, TensorFlow, Torch, Cafe, NXNet, Neon, CNTK. Mm-hmm. Um, and it gives a nice breakdown of them uh, between the languages that they support, you know, how, how many sort of tutorials and how much training materials are available. Uh, modeling capabilities you know the architecture of them speed of them whether they support multiple gpus and so on and so forth and it's just a it's just a really nice short article if you're looking to understand some of the differences between these at a very 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 high level um obviously there's no there's no real depth here but if you're just looking to understand some of the basics and maybe looking to understand which ones you should go and take a closer look at i think this article might really help so, uh, yeah, I just thought that was a nice one. And then there's a, a second article named slightly Don't differently. do so fast. Let me get some feedback on the article. Okay, give me some feedback on the yeah. first article. When
0: Dave starts talking, the world stops us. That's uh,
1: Quite right, too.
0: <laughs> I'm just looking at the little box there with all the different things. And it looks very nice, actually. There's goblin there like neon and MXNet, which I've not even looked at, to be honest. So it's very complete, very Nice. The thing, they even have the indication if it's a concurrent or re- recurring modeling capability. That's nice. But mm-hmm. the last column, the Keras compatible, that's probably not something that tells you anything. <laughs>
1: I guess it probably tells you something if you know what something being Keras compatible is. (laughs) I don't, unfortunately. Uh, Let Um, me
0: enlighten you. Keras is a kind of macro language on top of all the rest. And it's not really a macro language. But the idea is that if you want to write stuff in CAFE or CNTK directly, it's a lot of very low-down typing stuff. And it's specific for that specific language. And Keras actually is a... mm, a superset abstraction if you like, you can write something in Keras and then say Keras well just execute this thing now using Tiano and now this one oh, okay. do it using TensorFlow. So it makes it a lot easier and more approachable to use it. And so the,
1: something similar to kind of PML in the modeling space?
0: Uh yeah, or pig on top of machine of, of, of um, MapReduce for example. Okay. Yeah. Same idea. But the thing that I'm missing here is I was pretty sure that CNTK was also Keras-compatible, and apparently it isn't. So it's something I have to look up, because it's something I should know, actually.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But, But, uh, yeah, I just thought it was a a nice kind of breakdown of of the different technologies, and as I say... Not, not also the beyond and end all.
0: But. The multiple GPU supports that also. It, it, when, what, when was this written? February 15th. That's recent. Because yeah. CNTK is also definitely multiple GPU supported. So, Tiano isn't. That's true. TensorFlow can go onto one card. So, two plus instead of three, that's fine. But CNTK should at least have two and should actually have more than two. So, uh, as, as always with these things, reality moves faster than anybody can write. <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a nice overview. Yeah. And in a similar vein, uh, found a, another article that came out. That's actually dated uh, February 23rd, um, which uh, I always – oh, not always. I regularly see, probably once every two months, someone asking for how can I do um, speech recognition. And there are a, you know a whole number of different ways to do it. Um, and this is actually just talking specifically about open source toolkits for speech recognition. So again, it's a similar breakdown, a lot more, um, a lot more compact, a lot fewer options, and a lot fewer differentiators. But you know, again, another if you're looking for some options and you want to see you know what the the top ones are, you should be thinking about um, just personally and um, CMU Sphinx does seem to be, time and time again, the one that uh, a lot of people go to, but uh, there are other options available.
0: Yeah, well, the number of supported languages of course, a big uh, yes-no thing, right? If you only yep. do one language, like Julius does only Japanese, that is going to kind of limit its applicability in europe for example indeed so i also was kind of puzzled i didn't see uh lewis in here but lewis is something else this is really the, uh, the conversion between the audio file and text uh yeah uh, yeah right i would yep. say so
1: yeah and also it's um, it's only open source toolkit so there are you know a variety of different uh, other things that you can hook into um, to do speech recognition but this is purely open source toolkits for doing that
0: yeah but to be honest almost everything in this field is open source at the moment it's very hard to find it used to be that all this kind of stuff was uh, closed source products you could buy but uh, now with the deep learning toolkits all being open source there's so many people working with it that almost
1: everything you can find out there is open source which is good yeah, absolutely. All right. So, over to you. Oh, God, back to me. Uh,
0: what did I have? A second one. Oh, yeah. second one is a bit close to home for me. It's a article on the Medium website, which we've used uh, a couple of times already. It's a good sign, mm-hmm. apparently. And uh, this time, Amit Kulkarni, sorry if I butchered your name, wrote an article called Connecting Your Own Hadoop or Spark to Azure Data Lake Store. Now, to be fair, this is about Azure Data Lake, so you're in the Microsoft Cloud here, which I know something about. But the, data lake store, uh, the Azure Data Lake Store is actually becoming part of the Apache 3.0. It's in the Alpha 2.0 release already. So it's becoming a standard protocol in the open source community, so that's good.
1: When, when you say the Data Lake Store, you mean connectivity to the Data Lake Store rather than being able to spin up your own Azure Data Lake Store within your own environment. Correct, even though there is
0: something that will allow you to spin it up in your own thing, something called Azure Stack that's coming from Microsoft. You can have your own Azure on three nodes if you want to. Mm -hmm. Not how I would create a Hadoop cluster, but if you want to do it that way, you can. But it's basically on the protocol level. Okay. Instead, you can have uh, S3 underneath as a storage layer on Hadoop cluster. You can have disks, of course, and standard HDFS. You can have uh, Google has something called... uh, have something specific for a big data store as well. Amazon doesn't yet, I think. And on Azure, there's the data lake store. And basically, if you're using Insight, it runs out of the box. But on typical open source Hadoop, it's not there yet because, well, it's been introduced in the open source community in Apache 3.0, and yeah, you have to wait till it all gets bungled together. But if you want to run with this thing now, this article by Amit actually goes through all the nuts and bolts, going through the Azure portal and then downloading stuff from Apache GitHub uh, telling you which uh, XML files to edit, configure Hadoop installation to just make it work on your own little test site. And uh, it's a very nice detailed um, write-up on how to do this. I've actually been using this myself. (laughs) That's why I noticed I found it. So anybody who's working with uh, Hadoop in the cloud on Azure if you want to start playing with uh, ADLS without using the HD Insight offering, this is a very nice write up on how to make the connection. And once this thing gets uh, into the open source, then it gets more and more interesting, of course, to have a bit of a uh, head start on
1: this new technology. The only thing I would say is he's mm-hmm. doing it wrong. Why? Uh, because he's doing it on Windows. <laughs> <laughs> yes Should be doing it on linux anyway yeah i agree it, it it's uh, i've had a quick scan through it it's pretty good and you know you don't you don't see that many people going ahead and telling you to download uh, the Hadoop uh, (laughs) 3.0-alpha 2 code and building it and all that sort of malarkey. So, yeah, I think that's that's pretty cool. And very much like um, the old sort of Linux from scratch experience, I do think everyone at least once should go through and and build a bunch of stuff just to get a realization as to how much work goes into putting a a proper distribution together. But no, no, that's nice.
0: Yeah, actually, I would, have, I would give him kudos to doing this on Windows because it must be double hard. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, you're right there. Maybe he just wanted the the, the article. The article wasn't long enough when he was doing it in Linux, ah. so he made it made it extra long by doing it all in Windows. No, actually, nice. most
0: of the steps are just the same. It's just to be careful with the parts, of course, the backslash and yeah. the forward slash and things like that. But apart from yeah. that, installing Hadoop on Windows or Linux... Pretty much the same kind of uh, yeah, steps, just that once you do it on Linux, management gets a lot easier. Once you go
1: Linux, you never go back.
0: Uh, that's what I've been told. <laughs> and then I just went to work for Microsoft. I don't
1: know. Who the, who themselves have gone to Linux, so they'll never be going back. Uh, I see that's my personal my achievement there, but let's not go there.
0: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Back to you before I say something that I really get re- going to regret.
1: <laughs> <laughs> OK. So um, from, from joining uh, Microsoft, we come to data-driven <laughs> depression. <laughs> <laughs> That's so, not that- fair. That's actually the name of the um, – I, I think it's the name of the notebook that the guy uses for this. But uh, this is just a, a cool little article that I found on the Revolution Analytics site um, about uh, how to find Radiohead's <laughs> most depressing song using R. Um and this just brought a whole bunch of different things to my mind, <laughs> uh, like, okay, so how could you find out, you know, think of another a complete genre or, you know, another artist, how could you find the happiest song? And how would you define other emotions? But anyway, so this um, this uh, data scientist and R enthusiast, Charlie Thompson, ranked all of their tracks according to, and this is brilliant, a gloom <laughs> index. <laughs> and so and he created That's a right. chart with the gloominess of each um, of their studio albums. And so each album has um, has a sort of a vertical line and the songs within it are sort of rated based on their gloom index value. Um, and then there's a, an overall value. So apparently the, uh, the gloomiest uh, album is... Is let's see, amnesiac. So, if you're a Radiohead fan and you're feeling gloomy, uh, and the, oh no, I, I tell a lie actually, it's not, it's um, it's it's a moon shaped pool, yeah, that that's little that's little got, little got little the lowest value, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, and it also contains the uh, the song with the lowest gloom value in it, so. um, <laughs> true love waltz. So, uh, an interesting, the cheeriest one is 15 steps. So there you go. 15 steps to cheeriness. Yeah. And uh, and it's very, very cheery, actually. It's, it's all the way at 100. So, I'm yeah. not a
0: Radiohead fan, I'm afraid, so I don't know any of those songs. But if a chart like this can be made, I don't think I should change that.
1: No, no, and I, I'd, I'd, I'd love to see more of these. I want, I want to know, uh, uh, you know, happiest song from some other group.
0: Uh, just do the Christmas index at the Christmas uh, period of the year, and all the radio playing God. all the
1: Christmas songs all the time. No, that's a depressing song for you. That's that is that is definitely. Uh, it's not data driven depression. That's just music driven depression. Yes. Anyway, I just thought that was amusing, so uh, I thought I'd share it.
0: Okay, to round off the news, I've got one little uh, mention of an uh, article on the storage newsletter site about IBM platform to help clients address storage challenge at massive scale, which doesn't say anything. But it does give more and more credence to my bold prediction from earlier this year that uh, IBM will ditch their big insights for HTTP because this time they have now made in their big data environment a compatibility layer between the IBM Spectrum Scale storage layer which I don't really know much about and HTTP. So one step on to the HTTP embrace which is great.
1: Indeed and uh, obviously there was you know public announcements sort of towards the uh, latter latter part of last year about uh, HTTP certified on power, and that's now sort of spinning up as a, a real thing. And There have been customers uh, kicking their tires on it and all that sort of good good stuff. So, yeah, I guess more, more, more Hadoop is always good.
0: <laughs> more open source Hadoop is always good. Yeah, I'll go with that. <laughs> and that's it for the news, unless you have something else to add. No, nope, that's all for me. Then we're going to finish off this first part of the episode. We have announced the winner for the Hortonworks ticket. Make sure to get in touch with us. We've got the news. We're going We're going to go into music now. And when we get back, we're going to do a first of a, hopefully, series of uh, podcasts on typical Hadoop use cases. And for this first uh, entry in this uh, category, we're going to go for the single view of a customer. Or they have different names for that. We'll get more depth in that after the music.
1: See you then. back. So as as Jan mentioned, this is uh, hopefully going to be a uh, recurring series of uh, episodes where we cover a variety of different use cases that we see commonly within the the big data space. Um, So this is our first example, and we'll be hopefully doing a number of these uh, throughout the year. So our first one is single view. Um, So single view of an entity. An entity could be anything. Could be a customer, a product, a patient, um, a document, even. But you know, the idea is that you have uh, multiple systems that uh, have a different view or uh, different data about this entity. And in typical Hadoop style, you want to combine all of these uh, data sources into one place so you can actually correlate and find useful information about it. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, who who would find this kind of thing uh, useful? Um, typically, um, it would be someone who um, has an understanding of uh, a user within one particular system and a slightly different view of a user within um, a, a different uh, system. So, if you have a a billing system and a, a support system that, it, that are two completely different environments, it might be useful before you send someone out their bill to find out if they've been, you know, calling your support desk every day or every hour of every day complaining that their service doesn't work. You know, maybe it would be better to give them a discount or something like that. So, you know, these are the kinds of things that uh, you you would get from a, having a, a single view of a customer. Um. Jan, any, any thoughts? Yeah, it's a very typical use case. A lot of people start
0: with this one and, uh, you're kind of giving it the, the, the bad, uh, approach where the company knows more about the customer so they can do things. But actually, it's also a very positive one for the consumer themselves because when I call a, uh, my bank to change something about or open a new bank account, I don't want to have to send them my passport again. I don't want to give them my address again. I don't want to do the things again and again and again. I already gave all that stuff to you guys. Just look it up in your systems. Yep. Very often today, you have to just, every time you contact customer support, who are you? Can you prove who you are? Who you are, And can you do this? Again and again, just frustrating. If more companies had this single view of a customer of a entity of a of a relationship if you like in place it would make things so much smoother and yeah you have to give up maybe a bit of your privacy but i think the the good things the the, the benefits far outweigh all the negativity you can put into this
1: yeah agreed agreed um i mean the I think you, you've mentioned before, and we've talked about this. That there are multiple different ways to describe this single view. You know, some people call this the the golden record, the three hundred and sixty degree view of an entity. Um, those are just different names for the same kind of thing. Um, but if you're, you know, so you're considering uh, doing a, a single view use case, um, one of the important things before you actually go and start thinking about data sources and all that other kind of um, uh, things that we'll get to. Um, is actually work out what your success criteria are for, for doing this. You know, why why is it important for you to have a single view of your customer? Now, it, it might sound really daft just to think about that because it's obvious. It's obvious why I need that. But if you don't define – this is just like any other project. If you don't define success criteria up front, how can you measure – you know, how successful this was. You could come at the end of it, have a single view, and, you know, not have anything to apply it against. Well, that's pointless. You've just burnt a whole load of resources for no real reason. Yeah, that
0: doesn't have to be obvious, because as you mentioned, you can have a single view of a, of a customer, but you can also have a single view of a production line, of a product, of, of whatever. And you the success criteria might be different. One of the success criteria might just be a bigger mean time between failure for a product. I don't know, it doesn't have to be less irritated customers. And if you don't have that set up, if you don't have that somewhere, you can never – I mean, doing a project like this takes time, effort, is painful at times, and you need to have a point in time you can say, we did it. Or we didn't do it because. But let's just be positive. You have to have this, yeah, we did it, we made it. And if you haven't set these success criteria in stone before, you will never get to that point, which is very frustrating.
1: And of course, these things are always going to be iterative, right? You're, you're never really done with these projects. You just reach a stage where you've delivered an element of value and then you you know, continue to iterate on that um, as you, as you further expand it.
0: Yeah, you just define a new success criteria, this uh, next uh, logical evolutionary step and work towards that one and again and again and again.
1: Yep. All right. so I guess you know the, there are a couple of different phases in, in how you actually, achieve this.
0: You kind of skipped the... We kind of made a script for this one. You kind of skipped the who would find this useful. Is there something you want to go into the into a little bit of depth?
1: Well, uh, I thought I covered that earlier. But uh, if you think there's something in more depth, then go ahead, go for it.
0: It's more like we've we got listeners in, across the whole ecosphere, I hope, uh, in the retail, in banking. It's easy to say
1: everybody could use this. Is that true? i mean i I think so i i mean if you if you're if you have an entity, you almost certainly have multiple systems that refer to that entity in some way shape or form uh, you know in my view the the single view of entity whether whether it's customer product you know whatever it might be is is one of the fundamental cornerstones for big data you know I have a thing. This thing is referred to in my CRM system, in my uh, support system, in my production line, in my whatever else it might be. I want a view of this thing across all of those different systems. You know, it's just one of those core things. I, f- I find it difficult to imagine an organization that both needs big data and doesn't need single view in some way, shape, or form. Like, if all you have is one database and one system where everything that you need, you know, exists and you don't need, you know, social media information or anything like that, because, you know, single view is not just about taking information from silos within your organization. You could be, you know, querying external APIs to get, you know, credit or risk information about, um, about a customer, about a company, you know, you can you can be getting external information yeah. as well to enrich that uh, and to actually get that single view uh, more complete. Yeah, that's
0: a little bit of what I had in mind. I was thinking about old versus new companies. New companies, startups might not think they need this. And for the internal data, they probably don't because they don't have any internal data yet. But as you talk about the external data sources, it might definitely still have a use for them to do this. For older companies that have, I don't know, a hundred years uh, history, they have this kind of legacy systems that get organically grown and added on top and new systems here, which aren't entirely compatible. And those are the typical entities that uh, struggle with this, I think.
1: It's also organizations that have dealt with any kind of merger or acquisition. Like you've got a variety of different CRM systems for a variety of different acquisitions that, you know, maybe maybe they are going through a reconciliation process. And, Mm -hmm. you know, over a period of time, they will eventually properly integrate those. But, you know, those things take years and years to
0: get done, right? And traditionally, what that meant was uh, you have the two companies, the two entities with their own database. Let's make a third database, copy everything over from the other two databases and throw the other ones away. Then the next merger comes along, do the same thing again. And the advantage of using this big data platform to build a golden record is that you don't build a new silo. No, you just make sure that your data lake is able to just incorporate all data sources that come in.
1: Yep. Yeah, yeah. So it's, a different, it's a
0: different way of thinking of, uh, of of doing this. Yeah, different approach. Yeah. Okay.
1: All right. So, um, in terms of how you'd actually go about this, um, first of all, strangely enough, you're going to need some data. No. Um, yeah, afraid so. <laughs> um, you're going to need somewhere to put the data as well, but we'll get to that in a bit. But some, just think about the data first of all. So you you your first step is to define that entity now uh you know i i typically use customer um so let's let's stick with customer for this particular explanation um so you know you you defined your entity as the the customer that's the thing you're trying to get a single view of um then in terms of the data you want to you know locate um, the various different data sources that have references to that in, that entity, i.e., the customer. So you might have, as a, as we've said, you know, a number of different systems, a number of different data silos. So you need to get access to those, those data silos, ingest that data, whether it's relational data, whether it's uh, external data um, that you have to query through APIs or whatever it might be. But get all of those different data sources that refer to that particular entity type. Um, And then you need to understand what the relationships between those data sources are. This can actually be um, in my uh, experience uh, more complex than it sounds uh, Mm -hmm. because often the, the sort of the thing that you think should be the key, some form of unique identifier is actually different from one system to another. So you're almost certainly going to have, you know some form of uh you know etl or some form of transformation as you bring these data sources in to make it so that you can actually get those relationships to line up in some sensible way shape or form
0: yeah this is also the point where you start thinking about PII or privacy information because yeah. once when you're gathering all this you also have to make sure that everything that needs to be anonymized is anonymized because don't forget in Europe at least, and I think in the U.S., it's pretty much the same thing globally, possibly. Uh, you can only use data for the reason you ingested it for. So if you're going to put it, all your information into a single view of the entity uh, data system, that by definition means you're going to use the data for other things of why you, in the first case, ingested it. So you probably do to have to anonymize things. And this is uh, the point to think about all that. Because yeah. le- the legislation is being put in place, Things are really heating up, so if you're starting with this today, don't underestimate that part of it.
1: Yeah, yeah. If if your if your entity is a customer, is an actual person, then uh, you know, personally identifiable information PII is is very critical. You need to have that very heavily secured. You'll be dealing with encryption, maybe tokenization, maybe complete anonymization, as Jan mentioned. Yeah. Okay, so you've got the data you have understood some basic uh, relationships between the different data sources. So you can perform some form of, uh, some form of join. Um, The next step is actually doing some processing with that data. So there's a couple of different phases here. And uh, I have to thank Yon for kind of identifying these out because I hadn't actually thought of all these ahead of time. Um, But you know, the first one is around exploring uh, the data and, you know, this is probably, if it's the first time you've done a single view of a customer, then, you know, uncovering, exploring the data in a single place across all of these different silos um, and actually uncovering some of the, the basic correlations between these things is probably going to be pretty interesting if this is the first time that you've looked at this. Um, and, you know, I often see uh, and talk to organizations that, you know, even very, very early on, they find some form of correlation uh, basic correlation that they hadn't even realized existed. And, you know, it, it can be, you know, nothing particularly uh, valuable to them initially, but just curious and interesting. And it, it drives them to dig deeper into the data. Yeah, this also pulls a little bit
0: back to the data gathering step, uh, the, the first step. Don't only gather the data of which you know you will need or find useful also put in stuff that are just tangentially related to the item you're doing the golden record for and use this processing step to just uncover new value because that's the whole idea right behind the big data movement getting value out of your data don't pre don't let your preconceptions discard data sources which might at first glance may not have any added value but Storage is cheap these days. Just put it in there and have a separate next processing step to explore that data and see whatever you can find there.
1: Yeah. Very much so. I mean, it, the the most interesting and exciting things are finding those, you know, those unknowns that uh, you could never have, uh, never have expected to see. That's, that's really the, the, the thing that drives this thing forward.
0: Yeah. That's where you find your own identity because just doing what the, all of the other people have done before might be great for just in- yep. char stuff. But if you really want to do something new and innovative, you have to do something new and innovative.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Very much so. Very much so. Um, Okay, so yeah, that's so forming these or uncovering these basic correlations is is kind of the first step. Um, yeah, I'm going to re- rearrange these slightly, but yeah, one of the next steps that uh, we'd often see is kind of some form of dashboarding, some form of um, being able to actually show how these things look together or you know show how you can uh, provide a, a view as a dashboard to an analyst or to even to management about things that are changing within the organization or within you know the the customer base that maybe weren't visible before because you know almost certainly a variety of different silos have different ways to dashboard and and you know visualize what's happening but when you've got that full richness of data you can show something far more interesting
0: yeah, and dashboarding also allows you to expand the amount of people that are doing the exploration because you can't let everybody just uh, pull up the sleeves and dig into the data sets themselves Some yeah. people don't have the in, the technical not, ability. Not everyone's a data scientist, right? Exactly. But by just putting a number of dashboards up, you will see business users or customer support or whoever just see, hey, that's strange. Those two graphs are always the same size. or always the same Yeah. Kind of ten, yeah, yeah, yeah. ten, uh, tendance. Uh, what's the name in English? So, dashboarding is very important and, of course, leads to the next point
1: alerting and monitoring. Mm-hmm. So, you know. It- once you've got some form of dashboard, um, being able to you know see what uh, uh, you know a trend looks like and to actually see you know what 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 looks like normal, this is before you get into any form of you know true profiling or anything else. Just uh, you know a visual dashboard gives you a, an immediate understanding of this is a normal um, picture, this is a normal sort of thing we'd expect to see, and therefore you know when. The graph looks, you know, suddenly lower or suddenly higher. Um, you know, yes, you can immediately alert on that, but it's just—it's right in front of your face. You can see those kind of patterns. You know, almost sometimes before you know, alerting and such such kind of things trigger. Now, usually, dashboarding
0: and alerting does imply a real-time streaming system, but it doesn't really have to be. You can no. have a dashboard does a weekly. Look up a weekly report if you like of the all the date and put that once a week on the on the desktop that's fine yep. if you have real time, great, certainly, but that's not usually the first thing you go for. If you, yeah, go f- yeah. if you do this just in a batch operation, it's relatively easy, and I do say relatively easy, to go into a streaming thing because the logic is the same. It's just that instead of doing it once a week, you do it for every event that comes in. So you need a bit yeah. more a bit more machines, a bit more infrastructure, a bit more tooling perhaps, but that's not the hard part. Technology is never the problem. Once you have the the logic laid down, you can do real-time or just, uh how do you call that, periodical dashboarding as you wish.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, often people... They start off with an idea, and they process the data once, and that idea is then real. And then they think, oh, we could do this every week, and they start churning the stuff there every week, and then they start to think, oh, this is really useful, but I don't really want to be generating this every week, so I'll automate it, and then it gets generated every hour. And then, you know, they move from every hour to every 60 seconds, and, you know, it. it it just becomes uh, more and more, more and more iterative uh, and more and more, you know, far, far closer to real time each time. And th- we talked about this earlier, I think.
0: Uh, it's not because you move from the once a week to once an hour, once a minute, that you no longer do the once in a month. Because if you no. do it fa- on very short time windows, your error, absolute error gets ha- larger as well. So you need those bigger time windows to just make sure that the number gets more and more to the reality. Yeah, yeah, definitely.
1: And then you know the other form of of processing that uh, that you'll often see in this kind of space is the is the more kind of uh, the machine machine learning, so going more towards uh, predictive analytics. Uh, you know, next best, uh, next, yeah, excuse me. Next <laughs> best action. Um, sort of recommendation engines, and that can be anything from you know retailers having a, a single view of customer, uh, a view of how you've browsed through their website, and then providing recommendations as to you know which other products you might be interested in, and all those kind of uh, things as well. Yeah, and then the real strength of machine learning in this
0: stage, because at this stage you're not really using machine learning to go to a certain end goal. I want to predict se- and sell by dates or something like that. Mm-hmm. The real power here is taking away human bias. By having your data set being com- a mismatch of everything and anything maybe, if a person looks at it, he'll still, make presumptions, he'll still make assumptions and look at the data in the way it should be looked at machine learning is one way of just taking the human bias out of the equation and just tell computers this is all the data i have i don't see any correlation here see if you do mm. classification see if it works just yeah. throw some algorithms on there you don't need a lot you don't need a lot you don't need to be a data scientist at all for this you can just download things that do it for you basically but a bit of machine learning it can really give you insights that uh, maybe dashboarding won't give you. Because yep. sometimes there's correlations in things you really expect. The road is wet and it rained. Well, that's obvious. <laughs> but sometimes you get stuff out of there that's really, really interesting.
1: Yeah, yeah very much so. Um, and then, you know, once you've got your data, you've done some processing, iterate. Right. All of these things, everything that we do in this kind of space, is always going to be iterative. Yeah. You're you're going to be adding more data sources as more data sources become available. Whether that's more data sources from internal, more data sources from external sources, um, you know, just continuing to expand the the depth and breadth of information that you're feeding into this. Uh, you know, going into more depth with the processing that you're doing. You know, th- this is never done. This is never finished. This is just, you know, a point in time that you reach and then you move forward. Yeah, that's very important to realize from the start because when
0: you're doing the planning, when you're doing the project setup and you have to do what it's going to cost, how much time it's going to take, when it's, when it's going to be finished, when I get my result… Always take this iterative approach into account because there is never going to be an end date. And if anybody comes to you, I want to do this uh, 360 degree thing and I want to buy next Friday. Any kind of deadline like that just doesn't work because you can't predict it unless you've done it already and you're redoing it for some reason. I don't see why. Yeah. Would. Yeah. But if not, all you can do is put some ballpark times don't put a, a time for the end result but just make sure you have a weekly review do we make progress that's important yeah. are you making yeah. progress are you just standing still are you going backwards that's bad that's definitely something you can plan for but don't just go for a okay it's january by the summer time this must work and it yeah must and- pres- they must have sec- uh, guaranteed sec- uh, that it's accurate to the umpteenth percent that's uh, you can't don't go that way especially not if this is your first entry in this uh, big data.
1: Yeah, true. And then the other thing to be thinking about is, you know, you may already know know, some of the steps that are going to be along this way. So why not actually use that? If you know that you've got, you know, say five data sources within your organization that refer to customer immediately out of the box, then just start off with two and, you know, Build that, build the logic, build your understanding of how to do these kind of steps. Uh, And then once you've got two joined, you know, great. You've hopefully have something to show from that. Then add the third and the fourth and, you know, just continue to iterate that way. There's no reason that you need to integrate all five data sources from the very beginning.
0: Yeah, yeah, very good point to paraphrase, paraphrase a little bit don't go for the ideal solution immediately but again use this iterative approach by just starting small with something that gives you 50% of the result you want and then add to it add to it add to it until you reach that whatever you want yeah yeah definitely definitely and these okay. tools really lend themselves to work this way right this is how everybody's doing it this is how it's supposed to be done
1: yeah very much so right. this isn't That's... a big bang approach
0: It's big data, not Big Bang.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And it's not all theory either. Anyway, um, so we've been talking about single view of an entity. Um, So what's the desired outcome from this? Uh, the, The kind of curious thing is, the actual output of this um, you could say it has very little value, which is a kind of <laughs> irony here, um, given that we're recommending that this is something you should consider doing. Um, but what I would say is this is the this is the foundation you know this is uh, once you have a single view of, let's say a customer, you can then um, use that information to do something more interesting like you know, fraud detection or targeted advertising or churn prediction or, you know, understanding customer journey. But, you know, you need or you're very likely to need that single view of a customer before you can do a lot of those things or at least before you can do them well. Um, so single view of customer is is certainly, you know, I think is very useful, I think is critical. But single view of a customer – Um, from the very outset, you know, won't immediately deliver you a 10x return on investment. But it's one of the key kind of cornerstones that you'll need to move from that point onwards. Yeah, it's very much an end to a need. And
0: it's good to start with the single view of an entity anyway. Even if you think you want to do fraud detection, don't set up a fraud detection solution do the single view first and then have this as a source engine to feed your fraud detection because that way you'll set up your single view in a more generic dynamic way which makes it useful for more end results. If you just start off with I want to make fraud detection you will end up with something that does just fraud detection and that's a shame. Make these things black boxes amongst themselves so that they just do their thing but deliver value for the next part of the value chain. Yeah. And yeah. Basically, for all the things you mentioned, the, the, the customer journey, fraud detection, you basically always need this data set. And by doing the and single entity first, it kind of takes care of all of these first step things you need to do, thinking about how to ingest data, security measures, privacy issues. All that stuff is going to get in there anyway. And by doing single view, it really encapsulates into a single nicely predictable ish project. But still is very valuable in the end, not in, in its own, but as a feeder for all of the other big value uh, solutions. Yeah, yeah,
1: absolutely. Okay, so what could go wrong? Nothing, this is perfect. <laughs> there we go, you heard it here first.
0: <laughs> if you let Dave do this, it's going to be horrible. Uh, perfect, <laughs> sorry, sorry.
1: <laughs> no, you were probably right the first time.
0: No, what could go wrong? Uh, let's say. Well, you could
1: ignore all of our advice, then it would go wrong. If you no. follow the patented steps that we've laid out here, <laughs> um, we'll only take 10% of your ongoing revenue. No, we didn't fair. give
0: you the one golden tip, of course. Just leave your credit card number, and then we'll leave you know, the magic <laughs> bullet. <laughs> I think the main thing that goes wrong is uh, going for that hundred percent result from the start and not going the iterative approach. I think that's a yep. major thing that that I have seen go wrong. Just yeah, yeah. the
1: project people manager that it off we more than they can chew and, yeah, yeah. and that sort of thing, and yep. for all the right reasons,
0: right? I mean, there's pressure on these people. They have to have an yep. end result. They have to have yep. that success criteria must be defined, but be careful on how you define it. Make it iterative. Make it something as a step along the way every single time.
1: Yeah. That's yeah, awesome. agree. agreed.
0: Agreed. Um, making sure your environment is set up for what you need. If all your data is in the cloud, don't set your data lake on premise and vice versa. If all your data is on premise, don't set your data lake in the cloud if you don't have to. Mm-hmm. It looks like that. Yep. That's just normal thinking. Don't do it in your own.
1: Yeah. Find Bounce help. your ideas off other people. Yep. Even if they're only tangentially involved in this work. You know, don't. I mean, it, it's the kind of thing that you should do with... You know, any kind of project like this, you know, mm-hmm. don't don't work in isolation if you can okay. help it. Um, and yeah. Definitely
0: for this one, because single view of an entity has been done so often by now. You should be able to find somebody in your network of people that has at least looked at this. And <laughs> you'll probably find someone that has already done something in this venue and maybe failed and learned lessons
1: and there are there are examples of single view use cases out there and also you know go and talk to the the people that you're getting these data sources from as well they may have ideas of things that you know you could look at in terms of you know, correlations. They may have additional information about the data set just because they've been living and breathing it for so long. So, yeah. you know, just you are here to do the you know probably here to do some of the integration between those data sets. But you know, make sure you you take uh, the uh, the knowledge of the people who actually own those upstream data sets because they will have valuable insight.
0: Yeah, and don't mistake your v- end result as the only possible value that this thing will add because mm-hmm. those data source uh, the deliverers maybe you can kind of set up a feedback loop that gives value yeah. back to yeah. them so they can do better things as well so oftentimes, when you do these big data approaches you get extra value out of nowhere which you hadn't counted on but if you just think about it with an open mind you can see a, uh, different ways of making making money out of this Let's be honest, it's yeah. about the money, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, big data should always be either saving you money or making you money, preferably both. <laughs> All, right. All right, so, I mean, there is a, a real-world example of this use case that I, I often talk about. You've been uh, teasing me with this one now, so now I'm really curious. So, my, my favorite example, my favorite real-world example of this use case is a travel company and uh, they had uh, and this is a reasonably well i'm not going to use the the name of the travel company because i'm not actually sure exactly which one it was um but um and it's not so the, the only one i know it's not is i know it's not orbits because if you search for uh, uh some of this kind of things. You'll, you'll get some stories from back in 2012 when Orbitz did naughty things, uh, but it's not them. Um, but this travel company uh, wanted to get a single view of their customer. And they, they just started off with really only two um, data sets that they wanted to bring in. So they had a, uh, a CRM system that had information uh, about their customers and what their customers had purchased. Okay, so they had this CRM system that contained the information about, um, you know, which holidays, which hotels, um, which flights and those sorts of things um, their customers had actually purchased. Um, They also had and, you know, that is obviously um, data that has quite a significant amount of value. Um, they are a, a web-based, um, organization and therefore they also had a web server farm with lots and lots of web logs uh, that contain therefore clickstream data, um, and uh, you know this is this particular example is from at least uh, three, if not nearly four years ago now. Um, so this is the the kind of thing that's really commonplace now, but I still think it's a good example. So they had this weblog data, which you know was still considered largely junk data back then. Um, and what they actually did was they bought all that weblog data, and they just use not the, the full kind of clickstream, where did the customer go, what they look at, but they just looked at the user agent information, uh, i.e. the browser or operating system that they were using, and the value or type of, of hotel that they bought. Um, and what they actually found out is they found out there was a correlation between people uh, browsing their website on Apple products, either iPhones or on Macs um, and the the type of purchase that they would make for their hotels. So, you know, the, the correlation was that people browsing um, their website on Apple products would actually spend more on hotels and they tended to spend their, their sort of hard earned money on kind of more boutique, you know, interesting um, kind of hotels. So, What they actually did, they didn't obviously bump up the price of hotels to Mac users. That would be bad. That's what Orbitz were accused of doing. I didn't dig into that story too far, so I don't know whether they actually did do that in the end. But um, what they did was they actually changed their advertising. And uh, they just put um, further up in the listings uh, advertisements for funky, interesting, unusual hotels, and they actually got um, i don 't remember the exact number but they got a really really significant uh, return on that particular advertising campaign just by manipulating you know for apple users you know put these particular um, uh, you know, classifications of hotels higher up the listing. And uh, they got a, a really good result. And for me, that's the that's the classic kind of single view of customer taking, you know, a well known structured data set, and you know something else that's completely unstructured or largely unstructured, and you know mostly considered to be junk data. Joining those things together, finding a correlation, actually having an action based on that correlation, and uh, and you know, making more money. Yeah, excellent
0: story. And if they did this four years ago, they went to a hell of a lot more trouble than you would have to do today. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Very much so. Very much so. Great. So, I hope you enjoyed our uh, our guideway through the single view of Entity. Um, hopefully, we'll do a couple more of these. So, if you found these useful or interesting, please do reach out and let us know. Um, but... I think, unless you have anything else? Uh, nope. We've passed the hour mark again in the
0: recording studio, so let's put a knot on it.
1: All right. Let's wrap it up then. That is about all we have time for today. We hope you enjoyed this serving of bite-sized big data. We'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode. Until then, please go to www.roaringelephant.org where you can find out more information, send us your feedback and questions, um, and give us any thoughts, comments, and criticisms You can send us an email to podcast at RoaringElephant.org or you can use the feedback form on our website. Until then, my name is Dave. And my name is Yul. And we look forward to talking to you in two weeks' time. Bye. See you then.